first of all, we have the wonderful Paul Doran, who is one of the founders, one of the two founders of uh, the 10 by 9 Storytelling Night, which is an absolute phenomenon in Belfast. I was just saying earlier, they're queuing out the door to come to the event, which is really wonderful. And, you, and you've also kind of franchised as such in various parts of the world, so you can tell us a little bit about that later on. Without further ado, we'll invite Paul up first to tell a story. Queer Puff Pansy Fruit. So I'm going to tell you something that until I told this story at the block in the black box here, I'd never told anyone ever. And I mean ever. I have told barefaced lies about it from the age of 10 or so until the first time I told the story. And of all the revelations I have made at the 10 by 9 podium, this was the one I had to think longest and hardest about and almost didn't do it. When I was young, I went to Irish dancing. (laughs) That's the shameful secret. I even performed badly at the Derry Fish. And why was it so embarrassing? Why was it so toe-curlingly embarrassing? For goodness sake, I was a child. It was part of our culture. And it all comes back to one thing. Dancing was girly. Men and boys didn't do it. And if they did it, it was because they were, well, you know, a queer, a poof, a pansy, a fruit. Now, I wasn't the most macho lad. I wasn't mad about football, and I only ever played under sufferance. I wasn't much good at it. And football and the ability to play it were the benchmark of maleness where I grew up. I quite liked female company, which marked me out as well. Other than that, I don't think I was much different to any other young lad. I hung out with other lads, was as physically active as anyone else, and as adventurous. I did read a lot. I watched musicals with my mother on TV and knew more about Rodgers and Hammerstein than was necessarily healthy. (laughs) Macho culture in 1970s Derry was the default. You could be a provo with the blood of people on your hands, and it was less shameful than having a poof in the family. It was never mentioned, or if it was, it was in hushed tones. I started, along with Padre Gotuma, 10 by 9 in 2011 in the front room here and there were about 25 people and we had about five stories and we just kept plugging away and from the very start we had set out to get the nervous, the shy and the reluctant and we deliberately, we had sat down and thought well what are the things that we think stop people from telling their story? and we tried to build it um, along those kind of principles. Now, we always knew you will get the performers, you will get the the people who love telling stories, you'll get those people, but we really, really wanted to get the nervous, the first timers, the people who thought they could never do it. And we did everything we could to kind of uh, demystify speaking in front of an audience. Um, This podium, for a start, it offers the nervous a little bit of protection. Uh, it also allows people to grip onto it, and people do grip onto it. You can really see it. We made it clear to people: bring your story, write your story out. Um, if you want to do your story without notes, fine. But this is not about 
your performance. This is about your story. We want to hear your story. So if you want to write it out and you want to read it, that's fine. We decided it was going to be free, which, trust me, is not a good business model. However, it is. Uh, we we just thought, well, for a start, if you're, we don't want people putting a value on a story. We want if somebody has a story and they think maybe it's not that good a story, people have paid five pounds in. I don't think my story is good enough. So we thought, right, we'll do away with that monetization element, and um, we wanted to keep it to the ten-minute thing, um, so people didn't go off on a on a mad um, kind of rant. So we very deliberately targeted it to get to people who were first timers. We prioritize first timers. A first timer who comes up with a, comes forward with a story will bump one of the regulars, and um, we will work hard with them by email and whatever to to try and get them to up to the podium. Stop me if I'm. <laughs> we have had people who have religiously problems. And we have spoken to people on the phone who have real problems with dyslexia. So we get them to tell us their story to make sure it fits within our guidelines. So those were the barriers that we kind of set out to break down. And we get amazing stories from very, very nervous people. People telling you things that are so private and so personal. And it's, it's really humbling to be given an insight into somebody's life like that. As for why this is so popular now, I have no answer to that other than I think we spend so much time with electronics that to actually connect with a human being on a one-to-one -one basis and not via um, a computer, whether it's Tinder or maybe Grindr is a better example tonight. But, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, we or Facebook messaging or whatever, we, sp we spend so much time doing that that there's something lacking you're lacking that human connection and that's that's my thought now my sister was about to take Irish dancing lessons and for some reason I asked if I could go too I have no idea why looking back maybe because I wanted to I did go I enjoyed it I was okay at it not great but you know I could do a turn but although I enjoyed it I never told anyone I was going to lessons no one I used to walk past the community centre with my wee slip-on shoes hidden in a plastic bag until I felt it was safe to slip in unseen by anyone. Somehow I knew it was not the done thing. Guys didn't do dancing. One day at school our teacher was away for a few hours and the principal had drafted two older girls from the secondary school next door to look after the class. And they seemed really nice and I must have felt comfortable with them. As I said, I was comfortable with female company. Also, they had been trusted to look after us, so I revealed my secret. And suddenly, these two ordinary teenagers became tormentors. They ridiculed me in front of the class without mercy. This was the classroom, my safe space, and now it was a place of torture. And they refused to stop, and it was unrelenting. I can still feel the sense of being trapped and without power in that onslaught. The worst things you could say to a young boy. Queer, poof, pansy, fruit. In the corridor, after the bell had brought relief and safety, a teacher could see I was upset and asked what was wrong. Oh, nothing, miss, I answered, because that would have meant I would have had to reveal my secret shame to the teacher. 
we get the full range of society. I mean, we get stories from the Porsche lady on the Malone Road, whose story is as valid as anybody else's, to the working class person from the Falls Road, the Shankle or wherever, to the LGB, to the T, to every, we just get the whole lot. We've had refugees and asylum seekers as well. You, you actually said something earlier on when we met beforehand to talk about the session. You, you said that um, storytelling is not part of the capitalist economy. Which I thought was a really interesting line and not necessarily in any big political way but that it's almost outside of a lot of the other exchanges that we have. So why didn't I just give up? I mean, I enjoyed it, I assume. I really can't remember, but it must have been the case. Plus, I was, and remain, a fairly stubborn little bugger. Easter and Derry, and the highlight of the cultural year, the Derry Fish. Dancers, singers, musicians, and verse speakers by the hundreds all gathered at a local theatre for the week-long event. This was a big deal. It was exciting. It was like opening night in, on Broadway, or at least how it appeared in the musicals I spent too much time watching with my mother. There were girls in beautifully embroidered, elaborate cos costumes, prancing in corridors or anywhere they could find space, dancing on air, seemingly weightless, crossing and uncrossing their feet, rocking on the tips of their toes. There were others with steel-tipped shoes, creating a clatter wherever ever they went. There were flashes of color everywhere, hair curled overnight by anxious mothers. There was excitement, fear, and joy. There were people of all ages practicing their scales, learning lines, trying to quell nerves. This was amazing. And I was there to dance. And it was fun. Up on the stage, three in a line. I do a lot of work in prisons, and it's the most rewarding and some of the most difficult work you can do because... They're wonder they're amazing people and we um you're you're often so on day one you're with a group of maybe eight to ten people and they're looking at you going, What is this idiotic notion that these people have put you know, are forcing us to sit through? And you have to break down all that sort of thing. And one of the most common th themes with the prisoners is they'll say, I don't have a story to tell and you think well, if anybody has a story, <laughs> you people have the stories. But they do, and what they mean by that is several things. They mean nobody wants to listen to my story. I have such low self-esteem that I don't think anything that's happened to me could be of any interest to anybody else. And I'm going to, one example, working in the women's prison, and there was this young woman. She could have been anything, 15 to 25. I don't know. She, it was just, she just looked so young and innocent and her hand was covered in cigarette burns. And she sat with her head down through the whole, se the whole session the first time, and I was determined that I was going to get something out of her. And I, but I wasn't getting anywhere, and I would say, come on, what, what sh you must have a story, you must have a story. What about school? What about you know, your friends? What about your parents? Blah, blah, blah. I'm one of the staff, and the staff are amazing in the prisons. I never, <laughs> I, that was one of the biggest eye-openers, is uh, one of the staff said, oh, Jane, you like horses, don't you? And suddenly her, she looked up and her face was beaming. And suddenly we had an in, so we were able to talk about the first time she saw a horse, who owned the horse, first time she got on a horse, first time she fell off a horse, and the first time and getting back on that horse. And suddenly she was able she wrote that story and she presented it then later in the week. And it's just getting through to people to make them understand their story matters and the feedback we get from the prisons is just phenomenal because 
they will admit that didn't really think there was any point to this, but uh, it was amazing, or didn't think anybody ever wanted to listen to me, or um, it was just great to work with other people and to hear other people's stories. So they we got feedback from them, both as participants and audience, and they realized that this other pr prisoner that they may not really have known had also had a difficult time, maybe a different difficulty from them, but still they could relate on that level. So I think that's the, that is one of the powers uh, of storytelling and true true life storytelling is because it just builds so much empathy uh, in groups of people. I, I, it's just amazing to hear anybody's story and very humbling um, and anybody who's going to make themselves a bit vulnerable. You know, our audience certainly gives back big time. So it's like a, a little investment. You give a little to yourself and they give back to you massively. Now, there was one major problem. The boys in the 1970s didn't wear black trousers like Riverdance. Oh, no, 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 no. They wore a kilt, a skirt. And maybe Cuhullen or Brian Baru could get away with a kilt without attracting derision, but not a young boy like me in Derry in the 1970s. So all the while, I was hoping no one would see me. After all, the only people likely to be there were parents and other people interested in competitive dancing or singing. No one I knew was likely to be there, except there was someone there who did know me. Enter Fergal Sharkey. We, we weren't targeting the gays or anything like that. <laughs> you know, they, but they came, and that, that was fantastic, and now people get up. And actually, from the very start, people have got up and told their love stories or their uh, Richard tells stories of love, loss, and Tato crisps, you know. So, it's and it's not like, oh, this is this is, you know, radical. It's just this is it. This is this is the normal. So, and our audience just sits there and and you know, I don't know their private thoughts, but nobody has ever come up afterwards and said, you know, oh, that was oh, didn't like that, didn't like that at all. So. You know, I'd like to think that we've kind of shifted the idea of normality. It takes in a lot more. It just takes in human experience, full stop. Now, the fact it was Fergal Sharkey isn't really relevant in itself. But hey, it's good to have a star name, even in a supporting role, a bit of stardust in my personal history. This was pre-Undertone's fame. I knew him because he was a leader of my Cub Scout troop. He'd had to tend my severe athlete's foot when I was at camp the summer before. <laughs> it was grim. Anyway, it really was. He was a grand fella, but he was also a dairyman, or a teenager to be more accurate. So to him, a boy in a skirt, even if it was a, t a traditional kilt, was too funny. He didn't say very much, but I remember so clearly trying to hide. He just said hello with a bit of a knowing smile. A smile that was meant to embarrass, humiliate and threaten. Threatened with revealing this secret to the rest of the Cub Scouts. At least that's how it seemed to me. Queer, poof, pansy fruit. Anyway, it didn't affect my performance. I was pretty poor. I kept mouthing the steps, swing, round, one, two, three, four, hop, round, one, three. Um, I was my fatal dancing flaw. So there was no recall, no medal, nothing. My debut at the Derry Fish was over, and the world of Irish dancing carried on. But still, there was a threat hanging over me. Would Fergal tell the others in the Cub Troop? 
do you feel that story cracks people open in a way that, say, activism, direct activism, doesn't always necessarily do? Um, well, we make a, a, a point of we in our guidelines. It's like we won't, we don't want politics, as in we don't want a political statement. Uh, we don't want an upsum that tells you the moral of this story is. We don't want quotes from other people because we're not interested in uh, Oscar Wilde's words. We want your words. And and it's not that we are depoliticizing our event, but we are we want the story to bring over the point that you're making. You don't have to tell people at the end, and that's why you should do X, Y, and Z, because you will suddenly, you know, I think when you tell your, give your, share your experience, you might, you'll be bringing people with you, but when you start telling them what they should think, you're gonna lose half of those people. So I'd say it's a much more effective to just illustrate the point with your story. I didn't go to the next meeting or the next. I had to know if it was safe and I didn't know how to find out. And then a mate from Cubs told me Fergal did tell them he was waiting for me to come back and he was going to get me to dress in a skirt. And I knew my time in the Cubs was over. I never went back. I also knew I had to give up Irish dancing, though it wasn't much of a sacrifice. <laughs> Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names, names can really destroy you. I did return to the Dairy Fish a couple of years later again, in a kilt, but this time it was part of a dramatic verse speaking thing and I was a Scottish prince who came from Scotland and fell in love with Finvola, the gem of the row. As we rehearsed it in school, the teacher said to me, you'll have to wear a kilt, but that's okay because you did Irish dancing. I guffawed and denied it. And like St. Peter, I denied it all my life ever since. But we all grow up eventually. Queer, poof, pansy and fruit too. Is that the best you've got? So how does live storytelling compete with the YouTube generation? I suppose is my kind of idea. Uh, as you, I'm sure, are no doubt aware, Fidelma, uh, 10 by 9 has a YouTube channel. <laughs> And a podcast and a website, and we're very active, very active on social media. So when you all go home tonight, check us out. You know, we have a very good demographic as well, and I have to say, I was really pleasantly surprised. I thought initially when we started out, we would get a lot of podgy groupies, and they tend to be elderly, church-going types. Um, but I mean, we we really don't. It's a wonderful spread, and our um, social media, the demographics on social media, it's everything from 18, it's kind of 18 to 55, and it skews towards women, and it covers uh, what, um, I hate this categorization, but the ABC1C2DE, it runs, it's the whole, it's the whole gamut. So we are, we're delighted, I, and we get a lot of first dates, and I think that's because you don't have to pay, so you have that, you overcome <laughs> that embarrassment of, oh God, if, I, if he pays in for me or she pays in for me or he pay, you know. So I just think story just crosses all boundaries, you know. That, you know, the little old lady sitting quietly over in the corner, well, she was once young. She may well have been hanging out in bars that you would never have imagined she would have been hanging out in. So everybody has a story. I know I've said it so many times, but you know, you just don't know how to look at people. A good story 
uh, and a good storyteller. If you could be 18 sitting there and the person up here could be 75, but they can bring you to their world. They really can. 